Hello and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast for societies about all things scholarly publishing. I'm Anna Ehler. In this episode, we'll listen in on the talk given by Shirley Malcolm, Head of Education and Human Resources Programs at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which was delivered at our 2019 Society Executive Seminar in Washington, D.C. Shirley began her talk setting the scene on where she grew up in Birmingham, Alabama over 70 years ago, and the tough conditions under which she lived as a black woman in the Jim Crow era South. She considers the issue of having access to science a very personal one, and her passion to make change is where her story began. So when people started talking about open access, and I will just tell you, I'm not on the, I'm not on the journal side of the house. I'm on the society side of the house. And quite frankly, that means that sometimes I take the journal on because my role is different within the organization. But when people started talking about open access, I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. And so I started to look more deeply, and it didn't mean what I thought it meant or what I thought it should have meant. To me, open access should have meant that people can actually get the information and have it useful and not, you know, so dense that it didn't have meaning. But that wasn't what it meant, okay? That wasn't what it meant at all. And so I really wanted to figure out what this thing was and what, was go- what were going to be the implications of open access. So I started thinking, well, first of all, open access as a term is a misnomer. It may even be a misappropriation. Well, that's just me. I view the world through a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and therefore, it sounded a little bit off to me. So... I said, well, what does it mean to be open? That's one of the things, because there are a bunch of assumptions that underlie openness. What does it mean to be open? Open to whom? Who benefits and who pays? And those were the things that I was trying to figure out from my own perspective, thinking about how difficult it has been to get the messages of science and engineering into communities that don't have access. Okay, so open to the public who already paid for the research. That's the, isn't that the working issue? Not really. Okay, the people who, to whom it is open is other researchers just like the ones who did the work. It's not open to even researchers in another field that may be adjacent because that's not the way that stuff usually works, okay? Open is not the same as accessible. Accessible means that you can tell me what you did, why you did it, and what it means. And that's not what I am getting from what we are talking about. Shirley went on to quote from the popular book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, by Rebecca Skloot. It's the story of a black woman who was diagnosed with cancer and whose cells were then taken 
after she was deceased and used in ongoing research. Henrietta's daughter, Deborah, in the book, tries to understand how her mother could be dead, but her mother's cells somehow still alive. Ms. Lex is Deborah Lex Pullum asked a renowned, renowned, renowned geneticist at the hospital, Victor McCusick, about her mother's illness and the use of her cells. He gave her an autographed copy of an impenetrable textbook he had edited. Now, is that open access? It was free, the book. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, he even put his phone number in the book. But not so that she could ask more questions, so that if she so that his number would be available if she chose to give blood. Now, you think about that. Just sit on that one for a couple of minutes. And how would you feel? You would feel exploited, you would feel used, you would feel confused, but you wouldn't know any more than you started with. Now, this is written from the, this is, comes from The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Scoot. The book was filled with complicated sentences explaining Henrietta cells by saying, its atypical histology may correlate with the unusually malignant behavior of the carcinoma and something about the correlate of the tumor singularity. Reading magazines took Deborah a long time because she had to stop often to look words up in her dictionary. Now she sat in the clinic, gripping McCusick's book, not even trying to read the words. Later on within the book, it talks about the fact that she didn't stop there, however. She didn't let that stop her. She went and she found a very basic biology book where she was trying to look up every other word and figure out, like, what did this all mean? What did it mean? Impenetrable. So, does not mean accessible, right? I think that we've got to vary the way that we, uh, the, the different pathways to understanding that we offer. And that begins to raise another issue, and that is all of this stuff costs. And so we get back to the who pays. Um, I wish that it were the case that the funding, the, those who fund the research would basically understand the need to fund the dissemination of the research directly, not making it a thing that the researcher had to make these hard trade-offs, but in fact that they would perceive that it was important enough that they would directly support different ways of, of making the science available. I don't know if I believe that I see that coming, but in fact, I think that we've got to have some honest conversation about what the options are uh, if we want to do this job well. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to do it well. Um, trust is, is, is important, um, but so is verified. And being able to have and support these review processes, I think, is absolutely critical. 
So the final set of ideas here, will open access lead to equal access? Unlikely. Why do I say that? Once this transformation takes place, I have serious concerns that there's going to be a whole bunch of people out there advocating for these other things to take place. The major goal will have been accomplished. So the notion of open access, pursuing, make pursuing equal access efforts unlikely, probably, because where are the advocates? The advocates, in many cases, don't have the strength of voice. And many of the people who need it don't even know they need it. And so we have this kind of really conundrum about getting science and scientific information, the results of scientific research, out to populations who could use it if they understood how it connected to their lives. So, value added in publishing. Why is it important to equal access? So if I want to push for equal access, that means that I've got to get translators, okay? So why is translation critical? Because most people can't go from that original paper to the why, what, how, and wherefore of their lives. So I need translators. Okay, who will translate? I mean, the, you, we still have the problem I mentioned in 1996. We still have that challenge today in terms of the low levels of diversity within the science writing and science journalism community. The major thing that we find is that the people who do translation, they need something that has been done that you do in the process of your publishing. What is that? You organize, you curate, you review. You basically tell us what's worth doing. No fake science, okay? You tell us what is important. You tell us what is high quality, and you provide clarity. We need curation, we need review, we need editing, we need all of these kinds of things. You know who In people trust? They trust people like them. Good so point. to the extent that we begin to offer much more diversity of voices when talking about things, then we basically enhance the possibility of public trust. I mean, I, um, and they also trust the places that are sometimes unusual. For example, we've, when we first started working at AAAS and we were trying to look at how do we begin to offer science programming in communities because the changing the schools was not an open idea, and we just didn't have that kind of juice. Um, in our cases, with regard to African-American communities, we went into churches. And we were actually pleasantly surprised to find the extent to which pastors were willing to offer programming, and they were, often, they were willing to listen to us. And I think that, you know, a lot of people get turned off about churches and other places of worship because they tend to identify them with particular kinds of politics or things like this. That's not true. It's not universal. 
there are places that actually care about these issues and they care about the things that you have to say. And so that's another translational thing. We have this program at AAAS, uh, the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion, where now there are science, science courses being developed for use in seminaries. So it's not, we've, we've got to find the openings. And then once we find them, we have to basically go through those doors. So at AAAS, we've been trying to dive in and solve some of these issues. There is one project that started some while ago called Science in the Classroom. And it's, it started with big S science, and now it's basically moved beyond that. It just isn't a journal. But the notion is what kind of annotation can make this usable to college-level classrooms, for example, a freshman class, or advanced high school students and teachers. How can you scaffold and provide supports within the articles themselves? Because you get rollovers. You have the article and you have rollovers. So that people don't have to stop like Deborah did and look up every other word that is unfamiliar. So this notion of trying to make it easier to use as an educational resource. And this is one of the things that I think that it is possible to do. And that is to make some of these things specifically available as teaching tools and not and it's so that in fact students learn how you manage primary research that's an important issue and so it, it becomes and there's an opportunity that is your my concerns are that in fact the efforts that we are making with regard to making the science accessible it, the publishing side, that you've got to dovetail with the larger efforts to make the scientists more diverse and the people who are actually doing this work more diverse. So what might that mean? It might, in fact, going to places where there are more diverse populations of scientists and providing workshops. It may mean actually helping them understand the process by which they might be able to get published, helping them to understand where there may be opportunities for them. It may, in fact, mean supporting efforts such as diverse voices so that you can in help increase the numbers of people who are out there serving as these intermediaries, basically ambassadors, as it were, on your behalf and all of our behalf in order to get to public audiences. It may mean that we need more effort to make the educational values of all of this a lot stronger and a lot clearer and a lot more uh, robust than they currently are today. But whatever they mean, it is, means that we've got to be in partnership with you in order to do it. Thank you. We know that open access as a business model is growing in the research community for many good reasons. But as Shirley said, it's critical that we don't focus exclusively on open access as the only way to improve access to research. On its own, open access doesn't necessarily make research itself more accessible to non-scientists. 
For that, we need more translators, as Shirley described, and more translators that reflect the diversity of the communities who need to know about and understand science. We need things like lay language abstracts and illustrated review articles and incentives for researchers to invest in making their work more accessible outside of their own discipline and beyond academia. Societies and editors are critical to achieving greater accessibility, and as Shirley also said, partnership is an important ingredient. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley in Research and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening.